Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Hello and welcome. I'm Keith Plummer, Dean of the School of Divinity here at Karen University. And I am grateful for you taking time out to uh, listen to this episode of Karen Commons. I have frequently said to people, somewhat jokingly, that if I weren't doing what I'm doing and what I have been doing for uh, the last few years of my life, I could easily see myself being a librarian. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is because not only I like, I love books, but because I receive a certain pleasure of um, matching people up with good books and good authors that I think will benefit them. And that's one of the real joys that I have in being able to participate in this podcast. And uh, today, I am very happy to have with us uh, Dr. Kelly Capick. Dr. Kelly Capick is the author of one of those books that I have been really excited about matching people up with. And uh, before I talk about that, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about uh, him. Uh, Dr. Capick is Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He has taught there for the last 20 years, and he has authored 15 books, um, numerous of them award-winning, and he's also a popular speaker, has been featured in Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition. The book that I invited him to speak with us today about is his latest from Brazos Press, and it is titled, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. Kelly, thanks a lot for taking time to be with us today, and uh, welcome. Oh, this is fun. It's it's fun to do this, especially with a friend. So thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And you know, we we met a few years ago mm-hmm. at a, a colloquium where you kind of introduced some of oh, the yeah. material that uh, made its way into this book, and you told mm-hmm. us at the time what you were working on in terms of uh, looking at finitude from a theological perspective. And um, I, I wanted to, before we start talking specifically about the content of the book, hmm. wanted to ask you, how did this become an area of interest and research for you? Sure. It's a great question. There's kind of a theological side to that and a personal side. It really isn't uh, an overstatement to say I have been thinking about this theme for for a good 20 years or so. But the the personal side that pushed this was, and I'll make a long story short, um, my wife got cancer in 2008, and then after being declared cancer-free from 2010 on, we've been dealing with chronic pain. And so I ended up writing about, with her encouragement, writing about that in a book called Embodied Hope on Pain and Suffering. And, And really, the reason I bring all that up is thinking about our limits was forced on us as a family and on me and as, as an individual, just because of all these new demands and limits. We just, it became clear, like the myth of being able to do it all was just clear. <laughs> I mean, it is a myth no matter what, but we just, it became very clear in our lives. So I felt like after writing about the lament that comes with pain and suffering, which is based on the reason why we can lament is because we can sense that it's not shalom. It's not the good. Mm -hmm. But after that, I felt like I was ready to finally write about the good of our limits. And so the theological part, the reason why I've been thinking about it for so long, theologically, is probably twofold. One is I've been 
wrestling with the humanity of Christ um, through my PhD, John Owen uh, work and some other things. That's been a long-term interest of mine. And then the other is just through my mentor, Colin Gunton, one of my mentors really convinced me kind of indirectly about the importance of the doctrine of creation. And from my evangelical background, becoming a Christian, my freshman year in high school, just kind of seeing how underdeveloped my view of creation was because I had reduced it to, let's talk about how old the earth is and how God made it. And it's so much more than that. And so anyways, this is, this is me working through some of those things. Great. Yeah. Just what you just said, as I've tried to describe the book to other people, I I have said, one of the things he's trying to do and tell me if you think this is accurate. One of the things he's trying to do is to get us to think about the theological significance of creation, particularly being image-bearing creatures, right. as opposed to thinking primarily and sometimes exclusively about the apologetic value of the doctrine of creation. Mm. Yeah, and trying to help us not reduce the conversation to origins in the sense of it's just a historical discussion. Right, But the doctrine of creation really is about what it means to be, well, part of it is about what does it mean to be a creature and if that's actually good, right? And since we just have a couple chapters on that before we end up with talking about sin and the fall, we all say, yeah, God created good, but we're not really sure why that still matters. Mm -hmm. And I think it matters for how we think about ourselves and live our days and um, navigate things. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on the right track for sure. You start off the book and you say, many of us fail to understand that our limitations are a gift from God Mm. and therefore good. This produces in us the burden of trying to be something we are not and cannot be. You use that word gift with respect Mm. to our limitations repeatedly throughout the book. And that is somewhat counterintuitive, especially Mm. in our cultural ethos. Uh, could you say something about that? In what ways are our limitations gifts from God? Yeah, that's great. The simplest way I can think to say it is the reason why our limitations are a gift from God is because they remind us of just who we are and the goodness of who we are, which is we are creatures dependent on God, dependent on others, dependent upon the earth. And those dependencies are part of the good way God made us. And so the limits that we have draw us and help cultivate those relationships we have with God, neighbor, and earth. And and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is one of the influences for me in this, um, is really wonderful in talking about those dependencies are not the result of the fall, What sin does is distort the dependencies, but the dependencies that grow out of our limits are part of the good. They're actually meant to draw us together rather than apart. So that would be part of it. It's, um, you know, later in the book, when I talk about humility and these other kinds of things, a healthy view of our limits actually, I think, cultivates community, healthy relationships, uh, gratitude and delight in God, all of those kind of things. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I, I kept thinking about as I was reading the book and when I was reflecting on it afterwards is that there is so much that is working against that idea of our limitations being good. There is so much by way of productivity, 
time management, efficiency, and so forth. And in some ways, there has been what I would call an attempt to baptize some of those emphases. Mm. And so we go to, you know, Paul redeem the time. And so that becomes a proof text for um, time management and and so forth and getting your calendar together. Yes. But how is it that, well, I wanted to ask you about something else that you said. Uh, you you say in dealing with some of these things that there is a tendency to see our problem as not being able to manage our time effectively and so forth. You said, I think we have a massive problem, but it is not a time management issue. It is a, it is a theological and pastoral problem. Mm. And um, as you develop that more in the book, it seems as though, as we've already somewhat touched on, the problem is a deficiency in terms of our appreciation for what it means to be finite creatures mm. uh, from the beginning. Yeah, and um, so we're we're constantly trying to transcend those those limitations. Yeah, and let me make it real practical and pastoral to give a sense of this because maybe you can relate, maybe some of your listeners can relate to this. But one of the ways I've realized I can communicate what I'm what I feel and what I'm trying to navigate through in the book is often, you know, I love efficiency. I love productivity, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of, um, but when I would put my head on the pillow at night, I would often feel this wave of guilt come over me. Mm -hmm. And when I, you know, work through it, you know, sometimes it's appropriate in terms of I'm thinking about something I said or did that was inappropriate and sinful and I need to repent of. But what was unnerving to me is when I would actually look at it, how often that wave of guilt that came over me had nothing to do with something I said or did. It was really, when I examined it, a wave of guilt for not getting more done in my Mm. day. And then I just started to think, well, wait a minute. Do I need to feel guilty about this? Is God, put it this way, because we don't tend to put this language to it, but really, if there's this wave of guilt, does that mean that God is disappointed in me? That God expected Kelly to get more done today, and I was slothful, and I need to I need to repent on that. And when you start to really work through that, I yeah, sometimes sloth, and sometimes I need to repent of that. But often, it's just I have such unrealistic expectations about how much should get done, and now I've without knowing it, I've kind of thrown them up into God and said, "This is actually what God thinks yes. I need to do." And so I carry around this kind of shame and guilt about that's carry that that's baptized productivity and efficiency. And then I think those of us in ministry and leadership, we can then push that out into those we influence or preach to. And and I I just think we have bat, you know, like you've kind of said, we've baptized it. It's the whole Ben Franklin said time is money, and we have baptized that. And it, and it, for us, it's not that we want to financially benefit from every minute. But we really think you better use every minute. And that that we need to question. We need to really think through. We put that under the banner of stewardship. Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then we feel like, well, you know, you know, I should feel this because I haven't been a good steward. Right. Regardless of what we have done and accomplished. But there is that sense of I should have done more. Yeah. So yeah, I was just thinking about this just the other day about how the hidden assumptions. So, you know, you and I, 
PhDs, we do academics. We really care about reading and and the the you know the life of the mind. But I have to say, it's fascinating to me the hidden assumptions that creep into our circles, right? So, is it ever okay for me? And I know what we'll all say. Do we all say no? This is okay. But is it okay for me to spend last night watching a significant portion of the Nets playing? you know, the Boston Celtics, who knows when this will go out, but this was game two, right? And it was really exciting. And would it have been better if I spent that time, that hour or so reading John Calvin, right? Or reading, reading, right? Whatever it was, a a classic novel or something. And it's fascinating because if I put it that way, everyone's like, no, no, no. But actually, when you listen to our rhetoric, it's pretty bad. So we make people like, is it how, how comfortable are we with sport? How comfortable are we with leisure? Is all leisure sloth, right? We don't want to say that, but what we communicate is problematic. So I do think even, you know, when we start to ask, why do we value this more than that? You know, um, and we just can make people feel guilty all the time. And I want to explore that in, in terms yeah. of our particular humanity, particular gifts, particular interests. Yeah. You say in the book several times that you think that we, and you've just touched on it somewhat, that you think that we are in danger of equating finitude with sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And that relates to some of what you were saying about the guilt and so forth. And um, is it fair to say you're trying to help us delineate between the two mm-hmm. so that, you know, where sin is involved, we repent appropriately so yeah. and, and address that, but not be quick to say, well, if it's a matter of my not being able to accomplish all that I am expecting from myself, um, and we're not talking morally here, we're just saying, sure. you know, sometimes I'm driving, I'm thinking about, I've got to get the oil changed. I've got to grade these papers. I've got to do this and so forth. And sometimes it just seems overwhelming. Overwhelming, yeah. And yet I find myself saying, well, I should be able to do this. I I should be able to do this. And then there are other times where I'm like, I can't do all this. (laughs) And and it feels like I talk about plate spinning a lot. Yeah. Which a lot of... A lot of my students don't understand that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're too old now. Yeah, right? They've right. never seen this. But um, but I, I say, well, you know, I'm, I feel sometimes like I'm spinning plates and some of them are falling. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I was reading through the book and I thought, yeah, you've got your finger on the pulse of something that I'm sure is very, very common to a lot of Christians. Yeah. I do think it's, if people, you know, we don't tend to use the word finitude a lot in our day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just a fancy word for meaning limits, limited space, time, knowledge, power, or another way of saying infinitude is just a fancy word for creature. Mm-hmm. And I think we feel guilty for being creatures, mm-hmm. for being human creatures. In fact, sometimes when I say creature, people are like, no, 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 we're human. <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> we're human creatures. We right. are not God. Right. And so when we ask, I put it this way. I do think we have to move from feeling like we need to ask God's forgiveness for not doing everything, even though we don't tend to actually ask his forgiveness for that. We kind of feel it to actually recognizing we probably need to ask for for forgiveness that we ever imagined we could do everything. Mm. And, and, and that's where, like in our culture in America, we never tend to question it. But 
at what point, right, does the lawn, does the oil change, does the work, at what point do we realize, actually, this is unrealistic. I can't do it all. And you and I both work with, with college students. So, you know, as I've been working on this for years, I meet with students a lot. And I, I remember uh, going out to lunch with this uh, student and she had brought me a one week schedule broken down by hours for her. You know, this is Monday through Sunday. This is what it looked like. And every hour was color coded. Mm. And what she did on that schedule, and it was wonderful and painful to see. She said, you know, here are the hours I'm sleeping. Here are the hours I'm in class. Here are the hours. And she said, and then on the side, it's these are all the things that people I respect, like you, you know, my professors, my pastor, my parents, they all say I should be able to do. So I should get eight hours of sleep. I should have three meals a day and I shouldn't just shove food into my mouth. I should sit and talk to people and actually be a, you know, I should spend some time in prayer. I should spend some time. I should spend this many hours reading for every one hour in class. All that to say, it literally was impossible. Mm. And so we've set her up and countless other students to just live perpetually in guilt because none of us as faculty actually map it out. We just said, no, you should do all of this. Here's how many thousands of pages you should read. No, you know, for most, it's just literally impossible. Now, do they waste time? Yes. Did I, but I just think it's fascinating to look at. And what does that look like? And, and then so what's happened is you've been trained starting in high school all the way through college that you should get going at 730 in the morning, hit the road. And basically you'd be going till 11 at night or later. And then you think when you graduate from college, that's now still your model. So when you're not quote unquote working all the time, you feel like it's slothful, especially if you kind of have a Christian conscience. And so I'm trying to have us question that and think through it, not because I'm advocating laziness, but I am advocating faithfulness. And that's a different thing. Yeah. Uh, one of the lines from the, your book that I had underlined was uh, one of the most inefficient things that you can do is to love another person. Mm, yeah. And where you develop, you know, what happens when we make these values paramount, how they conflict with what it, what faithfulness consists mm, of. Yeah. Yeah. Efficiency and productivity, like we talk about things that you and I both value but when they become the highest value, it actually hurts people and relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to go back to something you said about um, maybe we need to be asking forgiveness for the expectation that we should be able to do it all because that mm. relates to one of your chapters. Have we misunderstood humility? Mm. And I've told countless people that chapter is worth the price of the book. The, oh, the whole book, <laughs> the whole book is good. Very good. But I so uh, that was very provocative, mm. uh, very challenging, because in it, you're saying that, um, well, let me just ask you, how is it that you think we have misunderstood humility mm. as Christians, oftentimes? Yeah. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, yeah, the, the short version of it is, I think when we, as Christians, we know we should be humble. And most people know humility is something we should seek or we should be. 
But when you ask Christians why we should be humble, our response tends to be because we're sinners. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for those in your audience who know what this means, I'm a reformed theologian. I take sin seriously, probably too seriously, that kind of thing. So this is not me denying sin, but I've come to really believe that when you try and build humility on the idea of our sinfulness, on the foundation of sinfulness, that actually distorts the whole thing. So the fact that we do sin should foster in us humility, a wreck, you know, that kind of thing, but don't build humility on it. And the way I would, I would say it is, even if there were no sin or fall, should we, did God expect humans to be humble? And the answer is yes. Hmm. The reason why we're humble is not because we're sinful. The reason why we should be humble is because we're creatures hmm. and we were always Part of the goodness of our design, as we already talked about, is that we were made to be dependent on God, dependent on our neighbor, and dependent on the earth. That all breeds humility. So humility doesn't just say, I'm sorry, or ask for forgiveness, although it does that in a sinful world. But humility also says, I don't know. Can you help me? Can you show me the way? Right? Anyway, so yeah, that's part of it. I think it's in that section you you have some insights from Von Rad in terms of... Mm how the the desire for, to exceed limits was actually part of the the fall. Hmm. Yeah, in his uh, theology of the Old Testament he kind of has this whole thing about he he's framing the fall in terms of this grandiosity and mm -hmm. wanting to to deny the good of human limits actually feeds into or is the root of that problem of sin. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Christology in the in the book, you you made a point that you said that unless we really understand the humanity of Christ, we're going to have a difficult time with grasping what it means to be truly human. Could you say something about that? Yeah, when I mentioned the humanity of Christ is very important. So there is a whole chapter on you know the subtitle is you know praise God for Mary and people mm -hmm. are like, wait you're a Protestant what do you yeah but Mary is really important right and but the idea is you know. We all, again, we all know we should affirm that Jesus is truly human, you know, assumes a full and true human nature. But what, what does that actually mean, right? What does it mean? Do we really believe that he went through puberty and some of the, you know, what, what does that look like? And, and when you start to ask those kind of questions, it does start to surface where our discomforts are hmm. and where our shame is and where we have confused being a creature with being sinful. And how is it that Jesus, who was without sin, um, was truly and fully human with us? So uh, I think exploring the humanity of Christ becomes very important and the importance of his flesh, actual flesh, the importance of just his solidarity with us in the incarnation. With respect to that point, in terms of the, the humanity of Jesus, the, the embodiment of Jesus, that's related to another chapter that you devote to just what it means to be embodied and the mm -hmm. role of the body in our spirituality. Yeah. And I really appreciated what you had to say there. You said a truly Christian spirituality must always also be a body affirming spirituality. Mm -hmm. And in that you were dealing with some of the dependent relationships that you mentioned before, in what ways do you see perhaps in certain evangelical circles less than a body affirming spirituality. 
Yeah, thank you. That's a good. That's a good question, and it really relates to even tying in what you were just asking about Christology. So, one of the one of the main ideas I'm trying to communicate in the book is that the God of creation is the same as the God of recreation. Right, mm-hmm. the God of creation is the God of our sanctification, and so the Son, the eternal Son of God, taking on real human flesh, becoming truly human, human nature. He is God's great yes to his creation. It's his reaffirmation of the goodness of creation and his attempt to renew and heal it in and through his son. And so in Christian spirituality, sometimes we're tempted to think that spirituality is anti-earthy. It's mm-hmm. about leaving this world. It's about leaving behind the body. It is, it is purely mental or quote unquote spiritual. But part of the argument is that since the God of creation is the God of sanctification, the spirit that hovers over the chaotic waters in Genesis 1, bringing about order, is the same spirit that hovers over Mary, bringing about the incarnation, is the same spirit that works in us to renew and reshape us, making us new creatures, and beginning a good work in us and carrying it to completion. And so this is all in and through our created reality, which is our bodies. We are our bodies. I do believe um, kind of an inter- intermediate state and that kind of thing. But the reality is the Christian hope in classic orthodoxy is not the immortality of the soul. It's the resurrection of the body. Mm-hmm. And so even that vision is this renewed kind of thing. So, yes, I want to say spirituality is not about abandoning the body, not about abandoning this earth, but about faithfulness in and through our created realities. It's in that same chapter where you're dealing with embodiment, where you um, very emphatically talk about this notion of dependence. Uh, To be human is to be dependent on the creator, Lord, dependent on other human creatures who provide their presence and love, and dependent on the earth, which provides for our physical needs from oxygen to lettuce, from shade to springs of water. And that uh, theme of dependence, you also develop uh, in the book with respect to the life of the church, uh, particularly, uh, more generally, just our dependence on others and the necessity. One of the things that you pointed out was mm. the the role that dependence plays in terms of learning about our particular areas of giftedness. Mm. I really appreciated the fact that you said we're we're accustomed to speaking of needing others to see where perhaps you know growth is needed, where we're falling mm. short, and so forth. But could you speak a little bit to how this idea of our limitations uh, and our dependence on account of them is related to the identifying of our gifts, as well as how it is that we should be looking at the gifts and abilities of others? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's it's funny because it almost sounds cheesy. We say like everybody has gifts, but we don't actually believe it. Right. So we just know you're supposed to say that. But then the only people with gifts we tend to think about are people like in the limelight or something mm-hmm. um, or the singers. But but I I really do. I've come to genuinely believe that God really does give his gifts to his people. And those gifts take different shapes and forms. And And I appreciate that you brought that up in terms of I think we have gotten to the point where we realize, oh, we really need other people because they will help show our blind spots and our sinful, you know, and and that's true. But what I, I've come to think that we don't fully appreciate is we also need people 
to help us see our strengths and our, our, the gifts we've God has given us. And one of the reasons it's actually hard to see our strengths and gifts is because they tend to be more natural. I do think gifts God gives us still take work and cultivation and time and skill. I'm not denying any of that, but because they are quote unquote more natural to us, we just think everybody has them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we're great with working with children or working with our hands or um, speaking in front of people, whatever the particular, or making people feel comfortable when they're in a room, we just assume everyone's like that, mm -hmm. but actually they're not right. Um, and, and, but it's hard for us to realize, no, that's, that's something special. And, and it takes courage to believe people when they tell us something nice about us mm. and to go, oh, maybe God is doing something and I should lean into that. And, and Calvin kind of talks about this. Listen, when you see gifts that God has given, it's an, it's a great depravity. He of all people uses that word. It's a depravity, not just to um, withhold honor, not just to God, but to the person who has the gift. Mm. And I think it does relate to it, the liberty and the joy that comes when you and I stop competing with each other and start celebrating each other, recognizing it takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. Yeah. And so we, we want to delight and celebrate one another rather than compete because we need each other right. and we're better whole. You have a chapter in which you're dealing with the idea of um, process hmm. and sanctification. And um, it's titled, Why Doesn't God Just Instantly Change Me? Hmm. And how is it that a, a proper recognition and gratitude for our finitude, our limitations, how should that play out in our striving to grow in holiness? Yeah. Yeah, it relates to some of what we're talking about in terms of the God of creation is the same as the God of sanctification, right? And that the God who could have made the entire universe faster than you can snap up, you know, faster than a millisecond. I don't, I don't know what the fastest thing is, but faster than that, whatever it is. Um, it doesn't matter how you read Genesis one, whether you think there's six, seven literal 24 hour days, or whether you think they represent billions of years, it's actually irrelevant to this conversation. Given that God could have done it instantaneously, but instead takes his time, however long that is, means that God is comfortable with process. In fact, he likes it. Mm -hmm. so that's how he made it. So if that is how God is, then it shouldn't surprise us that when the work of new creation, we are redeemed, we're justified, we're new creatures, and yet he's comfortable then by his spirit working in our lives over time, right? And that can help us because I think we just think, until you realize that, you know, Sin, we sin every single day. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions is, is God just perpetually disappointed in us? Right. If we put it that starkly, we kind of can tell, no, that, that probably isn't the answer. Right. Mm -hmm. But the theology behind the reason it isn't the answer, because it's because of who God is. He's so sure about what he's doing and has done that he's not panicked. We're in Christ. We're held by the spirit united to him and the spirit's working. And so our father can lovingly grow us 
through time and in space and, you know, in, in process, and he's not panicked and that should help us not panic. Mm. Do you think someone might hear that and be afraid because they're really relying upon the thought of God being constantly disappointed to be the impetus for their change? And they, they hear what you're saying and they think, man, if I really believe that, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, well, I, do you mean by that? Because um, I get this kind of question. Well, then why would anyone try harder or does yeah, that, that kind of Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and I think that what's amazing is this is a way of affirming the truth of of who God is and the the reality of human agency, right? Mm-hmm. That our agency matters, but it really is. It's all in light of what God has done and is doing. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works. Right. We are working. God is working, but we work because God is working. And mm-hmm. I know we fear, it's kind of like the antinomian conversation. I know we fear the abuse of grace or or sloth will come out of this. But I always think, you know, kids who have genuinely felt the love and forgiveness of their parents, not parents that are ignoring or denying the reality of the problems in the children, you know, whatever they did, the teenager, um, but a full recognition of, of what was done and yet embrace and love. I tend to see in that healthy relationship, the child doesn't then go, yes, I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> the, out of that fresh sense of the, the parent's grace and love, they seek a new obedience to use the language of the Westminster confession. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think, I guess the question is, you know, what is the motivator? And I think, I think it's love. I think it's yeah. grace. And yeah. even the fear of the Lord is rightly shaped in terms of God's love and grace. Yes. And you've got a very good exposition on what the fear of the Lord is and how that, mm. that is really a, a security for our, our hearts. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you, you're the, I see John Owen back there on your bookshelf. Uh, <laughs> and I, I know that John Owen is your guy. John Newton is mine. I, mm-hmm. I love John Newton stuff. And as I was reading your section on process, uh, this from Newton came to my mind. He said, expect not all at once. A Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but in time becomes a great deep rooted tree. Oh man, that's amazing. You need to send that to me. That's so good. <laughs> I, will, yes. I will make sure to send that to you. That, But that's it, right? That's it in a quote, right? If we really believe that's what God is doing and he's comfortable taking his time with the tree and he's comfortable taking the time with, that's how he makes us strong. That's how it works. Then we don't have to panic, right? Yeah. So, oh, that's a great quote. That's really rich. There is so much talk and there has been so much written about identity in Christ. Mm. And you have a a section in the book in which, while not rejecting that, just correcting some things where we can speak of identity in Christ in such a way that we lose sight of the particularity Mm. of individuals. Could you say just a a word uh, about that? Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. I do think, you know, with you as a theologian, New Testament stuff, I I think our 
identity in Christ understood in our, in terms of our union with Christ is central to the Christian vision, to the Christian life. Absolutely. But I have a growing hesitation on it because especially in the last 10 years, I have come to kind of feel like it's been weaponized, Mm. to be honest. And people that look like me, white men, often use that against people. It's white Christian men often use it and say, listen, stop finding your identity in the fact that you are an Asian American. You are a Christian. Stop finding your identity, blah, blah, blah. And we will say that. But the problem is what's happening when people look like me and have my kind of background is we are often smuggling into that conversation all kinds of identities, but we just don't know it because we're in more the norming group, right? In the majority group. And so we can smuggle in identities without knowing they are. We just think that's just Christian, right? Mm. And so our identity in Christ relativizes all other identities. But my worry is we still have particular families and DNA and origins and um, all of that. And that's not all bad. We And I, I just worry. So I, I don't want to take away from our identity in Christ, but I want it to be understood in terms of the fact that we're finite particular creatures with in real time and space. And that matters to God. Hmm. Um, the fact that I'm a male and not a female, the, that I'm from here and not there, that's not insignificant. So mm-hmm. I, I actually think we all know that, but we're just not aware of it when we happen to be in positions of power and don't realize how we're bringing things in. Mm. Right. And then you go, well, what happens when you say, don't have your identity in politics. And then all of a sudden a Republican is not nominated and you see their, you see people lose their minds and you think, I'm pretty sure your identity is there. You just don't know it. Right. Uh So now that I've gotten myself in hot water, uh, (laughs) it's all right. Well, as I was reading your book and I was thinking about uh, the benefit that this could be to the, the church, uh, one, one group particularly came to mind, and that is that of pastors. Mm. And, and not just with respect to the benefit that this could be in terms of helping pastors help their congregations appreciate mm. the goodness of our limitations, but as someone who's been in the pastorate myself prior to coming into academia and just being in touch with a lot of people who are in pastoral ministry. Oftentimes that is a vocation in which there are self-generated expectations, real or perceived external expectations that feed the flames of this. I should be able to do it all. And so I wanted to ask you, what is it that you would hope that pastors might gain particularly from your book, not with respect to their, their teaching and preaching, but mm-hmm. for them? Yeah. What, what do you see as real benefit for them mm. regarding this topic? Yeah. So for me, one of, you know, if I'm honest, one of the main targets that I often am writing for in this book is an example. I hope, I I think it has significance for, for lady, but I'm, I'm often writing for pastors, to be honest, because, and you kind of see that because I need people who are willing to, who are interested in church history and theology. Cause there's, I mean, there's, this isn't a breezy book. Mm -hmm. I hope it's accessible. There are stories and some of that, but you have to, you have to do some work to get through it. Right. And pastors tend to have that interest, but 
I have great compassion for pastors, and uh, I just think they are so worn out. And in our polarized, politicized, angry age, with adding to that just unrealistic internal and external pressures, they're they're worn. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that act, and I I think our seminaries have often struggled with this. I hope to reconnect them with the goodness of their humanity. Mm. And how the gospel can be understood in light of a healthy view of what it means to be human. And I think if that can seep into their souls, that can actually profoundly affect them and then their churches. And one of the, honestly, the book came out in January and one of the greatest things that's happened so far are just the emails I'm getting from pastors. Well, that's great. And and they're just saying some of the things that you've said, just I I didn't know how inhumane my vision was mm. and how unrealistic. And I so needed this because they just feel guilty perpetually. Yeah. So or or spouses of pastors. <laughs> oh, <I can't> <laughs> so um that, that's meaningful. And I would that would mean a lot to me if that continues. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's good to hear that it's having that effect uh, on on those who are shepherding like that. Mm-hmm. Related to the church and uh, coming to a close soon, you do have a chapter on, do I need to be part of the church, Mm. loving the whole body? And in that chapter, you write one sign that something has gone wrong and efforts to focus only on the gospel, in quotes, is that a church's pastor and staff are endlessly active in proclaiming and doing the spiritual work while the congregation remains passive. Mm. Now, this is related, I think, somewhat to what you just left off with. Could you tell us a bit about what you mean by that? Part of the opening of the chapter is, it's kind of, you know, people say, oh, I'm so glad there's a second half of the chapter. It's just kind of saying, listen, let's be honest about what the biblical account is that is expected of the people of God. And the good news is not simply words, although it is words, but what the people of God carry on includes all of this kind of action and activity and um, living this, this good news. And, and, but the simple example I give is just Matthew 25, where Jesus himself, it's in red letters, right? So no one can get angry about this. <laughs> and Jesus himself talks about the sheep and the goats mm-hmm. uh, separation. And what separates them is, do they care for the orphan the, or they care, you know, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, visit the prisoners, etc. And the question is, do I do all of that? Right. And I I alluded to this earlier to make a long story short. I mean, what we're tempted to do is either take what Jesus says in that and try and personally do all of those things, Mm. or we know it's unrealistic. And therefore we say, ah, he didn't really mean it. He, you know, that that's not expected. That's not gospel. That's social gospel that are. No, no, no. He really did mean it. Hmm. And what I actually wanted to, I, I toyed with calling this chapter, is there any salvation outside the church? Hmm. But, I, but I didn't. And because my argument ultimately is Christ is our salvation, but it takes the entire, as I said earlier, it takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. And so the answer is not to act like visiting prisoners is unimportant. But to realize I myself as an individual don't need and can't do all of those things, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, I don't have to be a preacher. I don't have to be an evangelist. I don't have to be visiting orphans and widows and et cetera. But the church does. And I need to honor and value and support all of that. And I need to be actively participating. So together, as the body of Christ, we do fulfill Matthew 25 because Christ has fulfilled it. And now he is doing it in and through his whole church. So I don't know if that was clear, but basically I'm trying to say we really need each other. And a communal vision actually takes the weight off of our individual shoulders. Mm-hmm. And um, some people worry, what well, does that mean that people won't do anything? And what I tend to find is people stop doing things when they're overwhelmed. Mm. But when they know that they don't have to do everything, they just have to do something yeah. <laughs> that God has called them to. Now all of a sudden they can do it with joy rather than bitterness. Yeah, that's good. How do you think the last two years that we've been through mm. with COVID and the things that churches have had to deal with in terms of not meeting for lengths of time and so forth, do you think that there has been perhaps some value in causing us to come to terms with our finitude and thereby our dependence I mean, has, mm. do you think that there has been any? That's fascinating. You asked that. So, so I was finishing writing this when the pandemic hit mm. and, um, I was writing the last, one of the last chapters when it was at least where I live in actual lockdown, you had to be in your house, you know, that kind of thing. I'm in Georgia and <laughs> you know, George is one of the loosest places, but this was early on. And so, you know, you had to, and I remember thinking my book's going to be irrelevant (laughs) because everybody was so excited. You know, there was this sense of panic, but also there were so many people saying, oh my gosh, I'm seeing my children. Oh, this is what it's like to have time. And they were talking about being creative and sleeping and just their health and the, the marriages and all of that. And I thought, by the time my book comes out, this is going to be irrelevant. And it was so fascinating to watch how quickly we reverted to doing more than we possibly can do and mm-hmm. all of the stress and anxiety. So um, I am fascinated. I work with some psychologists on some other work and I am just, I think the last two years are going to be studied and we're going to find out so much because as you know, while people were doing less, they often especially in youth anxiety levels rose yes. because of isolation. I think part of that is a failure to understand the way of healthy dependence and some of those things. So um, I don't think I answered your question, just kind of skirted around it, but I think we, some of us got a taste of healthier, more humane patterns and then just immediately didn't hold them. And, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, that's frightening. Well, Kelly, it has been a real joy to uh, reconnect with you, talk about this book. I think you've done the Body of Christ a great service in uh, researching and kind. writing it. Thank you. Uh, the The book is You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News by Dr. Kelly M. Capic. I want to say thank you to the folks at Brazos Press who have provided a complimentary copy for us to uh, give away, and we'll be doing that. But again, Kelly, thank you so much. And I really hope that people will pick this up, read it, not just read it, but put it into practice. There's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of good stuff for us in it. And thank you for it. Oh, thank you, friend. That means a lot. And 
my hope is I'm trying to put it into practice too. It's, it's, you know, this is not from one person who's mastered it. It's, it's, this is me working through this stuff myself. So thanks friend. You're very welcome. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.